on behalf of the Supreme Court, let me thank the folks here in uh, Edenton for your hospitality and also just for the incredible job that y'all do uh, maintaining the historic nature of your community. Uh, it really is a tribute to a lot of hard work from a lot of folks. And, uh, the Supreme Court uh, is uh, directed by our Constitution to meet in Raleigh or what other or in other places that the General Assembly may designate. In 2004, the General Assembly designated that we could meet here in Edenton in this historic courthouse. And, uh, we're thankful that we have the opportunity and privilege to be here. I know we've got uh, several school groups that had uh, signed up to be here this morning. Uh, the John A. Holmes High School, uh, maybe some 11th graders, and uh, Lawrence Academy uh, from, uh, let's see, uh, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, Lawrence Academy and uh, Bertie County uh, 9th graders. So uh, we're uh, certainly happy to have uh, all of you visiting with us this morning. Uh, it's time now for me to call our first case, which is uh, West et al. versus Hoyle uh, Tire and Axel et al. And we will hear from the appellant. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, members of the court. May it please the court, my name is Vernon Sumwalt. I'm from the Mecklenburg County Bar. And along with my co-counsel, Charles Mast, we represent Ms. Shannon Stocks in this claim this appeal and if we may ask to reserve at least five minutes of our time for rebuttal uh, we would like to do so now I've got a list and it's embarrassing to concede this in front of you know, high schoolers and everyone else but I've been up here 116 times not to the Supreme Court but to the appellate courts and I've got a list of these cases I've been involved in and I have not figured out in any of these how to start the argument. And I get in my car yesterday after the early service at church where I play drums. I drive up here and I'm thinking, well, this is the first time I've been before the Supreme Court since COVID. It's been two and a half years. Um, and I've been to the Court of Appeals, but this is my first chance to see everyone since COVID, which is a blessing in and of itself. But it also got me thinking about electronic filing and and you know the courts being shut down in Mecklenburg and the colleagues that we've lost you know from from COVID and the fact that the industrial commission kind of picked up the ball and ran with it and got electronic hearings and WebEx and went real fast and I thought something else that was kind of deep and and it's a good question for all of us and and that is what have we learned about ourselves from this and don't answer that because y'all are here to ask me questions, but I think whatever the answer is, it comes down to a value. And I think the values that come out would be different for all of us. So that was my takeaway from the five-hour trip, and I still didn't come up with anything good to say, except I realized that during COVID, I've been kind of blunt, or could be kind of blunt saying things directly. So I don't mean it in a rude way. I don't mean it in a disrespectful way. Um, and you've heard the arguments and the briefs with everyone about Fields versus Hollowell, but I'm going to say something and it might startle you, but I'm going to say it and then I'm going to explain where I'm coming from. You are looking at the wrong statute. You are looking at the wrong statute. 
Ms. Stock's case was kicked out because of a motion to dismiss because of lack of standing. When you don't have standing to prosecute a claim, the court does not have subject matter jurisdiction. In this case, we're not dealing with the court, we're dealing with the Industrial Commission. And what do we know about workers' compensation? If you practice in this area, it's all statutory. It's all statutory. It's like a big house of cards. It's all these statutes that fit together in a certain way. And they make sense if you do this a lot. And when someone who reads the Fields decision <coughs> looks at the reasoning there, the question in Fields started out with asking whether Ms. Fields, who was a common law spouse, could qualify as a widow. And that's almost a circular type question because unless you are validly married, you cannot be a widow. And that's a legit holding. Where Fields went further is it said in all other cases, because if you look at section 97-39, it's not a statute about standing. It's a statute that creates a statutory presumption that relieves a party of presenting evidence. And then it discusses the quality of evidence that if you don't enjoy that presumption, here's how it plays out in, in trial. Yes, ma'am. You started out by saying we're looking at the wrong statute. So which do you say is the wrong statute and which do you say is the right statute that we Fields, should be looking at? Yes, ma'am. Fields only looked at Section 9739. Fields never, never cites Section 9738. And as opposed to telling you what quality evidence to look at in Section 9739, Section 9738 tells you who may sue. Now, we've got that statute in the appellant's brief. It's in the appendix on page 8. And here's the, the thing. Field says a factual dependent who is not related by family, marriage, bloodline. At least this is the argument that we're hearing from, from the parties to my left over here. They're saying if you're not related by family, you can't take under the Workers' Compensation Act. Field decided that under Section 9739. What does 9738 say? It says, um, you know, here's who takes for death benefits. It says death benefits, burial expenses, to the person or persons entitled thereto as follows. Number one, persons wholly dependent for support upon the earnings of the deceased employee. Keeps on going. It goes to, if there's no person wholly dependent, then any person partially dependent, then it goes to next of kin. You know, I, I highlighted language right here. I know this is too small for y'all to read, but y'all have it in front of you on your brief. I went through and I circled one word in this statute, in section 9738. And you know how many times the legislature used the word person? Fifteen. Fifteen. Now, you've heard the argument that, hey, you know, South Carolina reached a decision that they would enjoy over here. Virginia has reached a decision that they enjoyed over here. But do you know what the South Carolina legislature and the Virginia legislature have not done? They have not defined the word person. Guess what the North Carolina General Assembly has done? It's on page three of the appendix in our brief. So if you rewind to that page three, it's at the very bottom, it's section 97-2, subsection four. The General Assembly says the term person means individual 
partnership, association, or corporation. It means individual. There's no adjective that says individual related by blood. There's no adjective that says individual in your family. There's no adjective that says individual that's a part of your family. It is non-discriminatory. And one thing we know, you know we, we warned against judicial legislation. I think regardless of what values we bring to the table today, I think the court can come together and agree that if there is not a word in this statute, you cannot add that word to the statute. That is judicial legislation. But well, why is it the word any just as important? Any? Yes. Because it is. Because there's nothing discriminatory in, in that definition. But any means any. It doesn't mean just your family members. If, if the legislature wanted to say only family members are entitled to dependence benefits, they could have very easily done that. They created presumptions to protect these close relatives. That's what Section 9739 did. They, they, they created these presumptions to protect children, widows, um, next of kin aren't dependents, but there are presumptions there that protect this. So I know, you know, we've heard, and again, you know, I don't know how many oral arguments I've had at the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals, but there hasn't been a single one where we haven't seen from the other side who, who have done a good job briefing their cases, but they're always crying that the sky is falling. It's not going to fall off these presumptions. So it's not you say that we're looking at the wrong statute, are you saying that Section 97-39 is inapplicable at all? I'm saying even if it is inapplicable, you've got a positive statement by the legislature, 97-38, that a person has the right to prosecute a dependency issue. And the question before this court is, Shannon Stocks an individual? I think the answer to that is yes. Because if she is, our legislature says she is a person. Well, how do we reconcile Section 9738, as you would have us to do, with 9739 in terms of a conclusive presumption? And as you say, in terms of all of this being statutory, if you have a presumption, it's presumed to be rebuttable. But if the term conclusively is involved, that means it's not rebuttable at all, and the outcome, therefore, would operate against your client. Actually, it wouldn't, Your Honor. Ms. Stocks is not a widow. As I mentioned earlier, only someone who is validly married is a widow, and that was the issue in Fields. Um, we are claiming a factual dependency. You know, the, the word any that, that's in there, the word individual, it doesn't discriminate only with people who are in your family. What the presumption does is, is it protects those family members. It gives them a conclusive presumption to the exclusion of others that they're whole dependents, if they're a minor child and, um, or a widow, um, none is, of which we have here, by the way. Yeah, but if it is a conclusive presumption, doesn't that obviate the ability to have a hearing? Because a hearing would be an effort in futility if there is not an opportunity to rebut a presumption that's conclusive. Only if you wanted to rebut the widow's entitlement, but there's no widow here. Okay. So that's why you say it doesn't operate at all. Right. The, the, no the enjoyment of that presumption is the person that, that gets benefits. It's the widow or, or the mm -hmm. child. But they've got to be a, a widow that's not living apart for justifiable cause, which we have no evidence of for, for Sharon West here. 
Or it's got to be a minor child, which the son and daughter over here, they aren't minor. They're adults. They are no, there are no dependents over here. So, you know, I, I, you know, I hear the save the babies argument. I hear the save the children because, you know, the dependent children are going to suffer. They're not going to suffer. That's why we have these presumptions. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Under 9739, the only people who could be entitled to a conclusive presumption would be a widow, which is a spouse living with the employee at the time of death, or a child under 18. Correct. Correct? So uh, isn't the key phrase in 9739, the beginning of the second sentence that says, in all other cases, i.e. whenever there's not um, a whole dependent? Yes, yes ma'am. And that is the language that Fields looked at. But here's where, with all respect, Fields didn't look at it accurately because it justified it through a moral crusade. It didn't justify it by looking at what the legislature said were the other cases and who could prosecute those cases. Right. Well, we're not looking at it through a moral lens. We're looking at it through a statutory framework. And I, I understand that the Court of Appeals and the Industrial Commission felt they were bound by Absolutely. fields and that we are not. And so my question is, what do you contend we should do with fields? Ooh, you know, I am always reluctant to say toss it, you know, to, to reverse it. Because there are, there's merit in saying that you can't qualify as a widow unless you are validly married. Um, but, you know, I mentioned, I asked earlier what we learned about ourselves. And, and the question is, you know, what is the court as an institution when it looks at a case that says, you know what, we, we came out with a decision this way, but we have a statute whose language is that way. What can we learn about ourselves? Can we go back and say, you know, we didn't, we didn't talk about that statute. Which might be an interesting subject of discussion, or, or is it what do we do now, given the various doctrines that are intended to try to import certainty into the law? I mean, we've got a decision, rightly or wrongly, that was decided a while back, and the General Assemblies had plenty of opportunity to say, oops, you got it wrong, and as you know, they have been known to do that, particularly in cop cases on occasion. Uh, they didn't do it here. So to echo Justice Hudson's question, are you urging us to overrule it, or are you not urging us to overrule it? If you are urging us to overrule it, then what are we supposed to do with the fact that the General Assembly has allowed it to stand as it is for decades? I think you can overrule it. Or you may even be able to, to push it into a corner saying, look, it was only whether a widow, whether Ms. Fields qualified as a widow, and then the court went off on other issues. I'm sorry, say that, say that again. Yeah, it, it, it only looked at the issue whether, and, and they can see this in their briefs, whether Ms. Fields qualified as a widow. I'm saying she didn't. I'm, I'm saying Ms. Stocks doesn't qualify as a widow. But what I'm saying also is that doesn't prevent people, any individual or any person, who is just a simple dependent and not a family relationship from, from qualifying under Section 9738. You can also limit fields by saying it didn't look at 9738. Well, and I guess that was going to be my other question is, uh, obviously I have 
read the brief that was filed on behalf of your client is the argument that you're making in the reliance upon 97-38 in that brief? 97-38 is mentioned, yes. Is, is the argument that you have made, which is in effect, we're looking at the fields, looked at the wrong statute, that we need to look at the language in uh, uh, 97-38-3 that refers to persons and then refers to the definition of persons again, 97-2-4. Is that argument made in your brief? The, the, it is, not specifically, but when you look at any other cases, the question is what does any other cases in section 9739 mean? Um, well, I, I mean, I guess, I mean, I guess part of the, the direct consensus, if we're going to be direct post-COVID, let's be direct post-COVID. We've yes. got a canon of construction that says that if the General Assembly has allowed a determination to stand for some period of time, that's certainly evidence that that decision should be allowed to remain undisturbed. And then you've got, secondly, the rule that says that you're bound by the arguments made in the brief. I mean, what, what do we, given those two legal principles, where do we go here? That, that is fine for Section 9739, but you also have a remedy under Section 9738. And the rule of statutory construction is also, when you have two side-by-side -side remedies, you, you can enjoy either one. You've also got the rule set by this court that when there's an ambiguity you know, between these two statutes, you've got to resolve that ambiguity in terms of coverage. So, so you can't pick a statute over here when the statute over there, you can't pick a statute over here that closes the courthouse doors when the statute over there opens them or is wide enough to open them just by the language and the definitional sections of the act. So, you know, that, that's the predicament. That, that's why it's, it's, you know, value judgments, and I don't, I don't fault anyone for values. I, you look at fields and you realize that was a prevailing thing. I know that when Mr. Mass filed this claim, there was census data and stuff, but he, we may or may not win that. But, you know, if we go to hearing, but we never went to hearing. We had the courthouse doors shut on us. That, so that's, let me ask you another question about fields before you get too far away from that. Um, are, is, it, is it your position then that fields can still stand for the proposition that someone can't qualify as a widow by claiming to be a common law spouse? I think you can narrow its holding to that. Um, and the reason is it's almost a seven-year-old case. You know, lot, lots has changed in seven years. Um, I can't pull up online on the course electronic site to figure out exactly what arguments were presented or pull up the party's briefs like, like you, know, you can now. Um, so I'm not really sure. When I read Fields, we know a couple things that are really undisputed. One is, there's Miss Fields thought she was a common law spouse. Two, and it's undisputed, North Carolina doesn't recognize common law marriages. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's face it. Um, so there wasn't a valid marriage. And the, the holding initially in Fields was, she's not a widow. And you know what? That's not an incorrect holding. That's not an incorrect holding. I think we're the court went astray a little bit is when they proceeded and say, well, not only is that the case, but we can never do this because you, you can't award a, a, a live-in fiance or live-in girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. But you know what? The, the criminal statute, section 14-44, that talks about a man and wife not being able to live together, yada, 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 because it's immoral. And this word is used in the fields. I can't pronounce it because it's five syllables, but it's lasciviousness or however you say it. That, that's from the criminal statute. 
you know, and, and since then, 2003, we have the U.S. Supreme Court that was mentioned in the PDR of Lewis versus Texas. That, that statute is probably not constitutional because now we have domestic partnerships. I mean, lawyers who appear before this court are in domestic partnerships. Um, things that weren't covered by the morals back then, no doubt, but which, you know, which have been validated by the, by the federal courts now. And I, again, I'm not saying I agree with that. That's not, you know, that's, that's not the song I sing. But when we call 12 people from our communities to serve on our juries, we're calling them there because there are different values. And we're calling them there because those different values bring value to our community. And until our legislature says people who aren't married can't qualify as a general dependent, or people who aren't in the same family can't qualify as a dependent, or, or actually a person, because that definition doesn't discriminate, then the court cannot add language that does discriminate against them. Well, and speaking of that, and you mentioned the term values, and that leads me to think about the fact that the General Assembly routinely and inherently uh, considers public policy. And public policy has been an issue in <clears throat> all the briefs. Yeah. How do we square the public policy being reserved to the legislature with what you have said that this court has erroneously done in fields and what you are concerned may continue forward? I, I think you need to extend an invitation to the General Assembly to clarify this. Because I think the General Assembly can figure it out. Um, well, what, what do you contend they need to clarify? What is well, it's not for the purpose of the decision today, they don't need to clarify anything because they haven't stated if you're unrelated, you don't get comp benefits. That's, that's very clear is that definition of persons doesn't discriminate. What I'm saying is if it, if it bothers anyone, any member of the court from a value-based system, you can invite the legislature to say, look, if, if this doesn't match with your values, please help us out. Well, the curiosity is, uh, as Justice Irvin has raised, if the legislature has chosen not to visit it actively over the course of the last 70 years since Fields, then why would we, and I say this uh, not, not facetiously and not rhetorically, but why would we invite them to do something that they know that they can invite themselves to do in the dearth of not haven't said anything about Fields in 70 years. Well, because Fields didn't look at 9738. There's nothing that Fields impairs about 9738. Fields is a 9739 decision. And it, it, look at Fields. I mean, that's the silver bullet here that, you know, it, yeah, I think it was Bram Stoker, the silver bullet kills the vampires. But the silver bullet is you can read Fields and it never mentions 9738. So how do you, how do you close the courthouse doors through Fields yeah, if you read the plain language of 9738, it opens the doors for persons, for individuals. Well, I understood you to be arguing in your brief that um, 9739 also is unambiguous, so that we don't even get to this question of statutory interpretation and using a canon of construction, relying on what the legislature did or did not do, if the in all other cases language is itself unambiguous. In all other cases, it is unambiguous, meaning in all the cases except for the presumption, except for the presumed cases, the, the factual dependency cases. Um, but 
you know, the, the issue we've got, at least I, when I'm looking at this, is 9739 is not a standing statute. It just tells you the quality of evidence that you have to present in court before the commission. It doesn't say these parties have standing to prosecute the claim. 9738 very clearly says who, here's who can prosecute the claim. Here's who has standing. So I'm really not sure why, you know, I don't have an answer to this. I don't know why the Supreme Court addressed a standing issue in the other statute, except it looked at the widow issue, saying, okay, well, Ms. Fields isn't validly married. She's not a widow. And then it went, let's close off the door entirely. Because you look at these things, you look at the language of, of Fields, um, and, it, you know, it's pretty value-laden. Um, I mentioned the, the citizens word that I can't pronounce, but you know it's against public morals. It it and it, it gives part. It says it could be added that such a claim is conceived in sin, and shapened in iniquity. Um, that's the claim you we brought here. That this is a statutory uh, construction situation, and you you don't dispute that the General Assembly in its intestate. Uh, secession statutes, statutes about people who die without wills, uh, can direct the estate of a deceased to anyone that they determine is best. And, you know, they, they would say uh, to uh, the wife. And under the facts of this case, uh, the, uh, the decedent did have a wife, correct? So, as we look at uh, the statutory construction, uh, when we look at the definition of widow, it says it includes only the decedent's wife living with or dependent for support upon at the time of his death. And then you look at the uh, presumption under 97-39, uh, as Justice Morgan pointed out, that a widow is conclusively presumed to be wholly dependent in support upon the deceased employee. Uh, why shouldn't we take those statutes at their face, uh, ex express language that for a person to qualify as a widow, they have to be dependent upon, but you have an individual who is now conclusively presumed to be wholly dependent. Uh, so why would that not qualify the widow under these facts? Because it, 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 that's not the full definition of widow. A widow is someone living with the decedent or dependent upon him or living apart. But the dependent is living apart for justifiable cause. Um, and well, the, the but, facts here. But it does say or dependent upon. It, right. it doesn't say, uh, uh, you know, it's not an and, it's an or in there. Well, let's, let's make one thing clear. Sharon West is not dependent on anyone. She was not dependent on Keith West. They had lived apart for five years. She was not dependent on anyone. She does not qualify as a dependent. She does not meet the statutory definition of widow. And the three takers of, of the benefits here split it up just like next of kin would split it up. But guess what? She doesn't qualify under the definition of next of kin, which, on, which only looks at children and, and other relatives, not estranged wives for five years. So she, she doesn't have a dependency because if she did have a dependency, she would take it to the exclusion of, of Shannon Stocks because she is a presumed whole dependent. You take it to the exclusion of an alleged partial dependent um, under section 9738. So if she really was a whole dependent, we wouldn't be here. 
I mean, we don't have a claim because she would be the only person with standing to take benefits. Well, let me back, go back to what one of the things that you said about fields. Um, it, it is my understanding that the court in fields said that the, the, the claimant there was not a widow and also did not fit within the, in all other cases as a dependent because she was illegally cohabitating um, and therefore couldn't put on any proof about why she was a dependent. How, how can we agree with you if we do uh, without overruling that? What I'm saying is Fields creates an ambiguous set of statutes. Section 9739 closes the courthouse doors, but if you look at the plain language of subsection 4 of 97-2 and 9738, the questions are, is Ms. Stocks an individual? Again, the answer is yes. That means she's a person under that statute. That means the legislature has expressly said that the courthouse doors are open for you. Fields never addresses that statutory framework. So when it pulls that card out of that house, guess what happens to the rest of the house of cards? And, and all of a sudden, we have arguments that Fields, a Section 9739 case, destroys Section 9738 when our legislature has expressly said any individual, any person, can prosecute a claim as a defendant. To so are you himself. arguing that in, in essence what the court did in Fields was sort of amend the statute? It limited a statute that the legislature did not limit by express language. And that is, again, that's judicial legislation. When, when you read section, the subsection 4, the definition of um, person, it says, means any individual. It, it doesn't say any family member. It doesn't say any related individual. You've got to add that language in there to get to the result the field got. And with all due respect to this court, you can't do that. You can't do that. And hindsight's twenty twenty. I mean, I think Oliver Wendell Holmes said, um, you know, law's a magic mirror. Yeah, I'm going to goof this up completely. Law's a magic mirror, but it not only looks at what the members of this court and their values and their, their you know, where y'all are at today, it looks at the generations before us. And it's real easy to, to look back at the 1953 case and say, oh, gosh, where was Section 9738 in this discussion? Um, it's real easy for us to do that. Until you're well within your rebuttal time. Yes, sir. I will, I will save my last minute for that. Thank you. May it please the court, Chief Justice and Associate Justices, my name is Kelly Stevens and I represent Jessica West Hayes, the daughter of Keith West, the employee that was killed in the industrial accident in Tennessee. The well-established law in North Carolina for over 69 years that only those persons are who are related to the employee by blood, marriage, adoption, or otherwise defined under the Workers' Compensation Act may make a claim for death benefit should not be changed to allow anyone, regardless of relationship status to the employee, to make a claim. Because doing so would be contrary to the intent of the legislature that passed the laws in 1929, would be inconsistent with other provisions in the act, 
would be inconsistent with other statutory laws in our state, such as the wrongful death statute, would create absurd results in the administration of benefits, and would frustrate the prompt payment of claims to citizens of this state. It also would create benefits for persons under the law who the employee has no legal duty to support. Therefore, so we are asking... Sorry to interrupt you so early on, but, <laughs> I mean, I, but I do have a question about that. You're not contending that your client is, was, is a whole dependent under the statute, are you? No, Your Honor. Uh, my client was an adult child over the age of 18, and therefore she would qualify as a next of kin to receive benefits after the death of her father. And so, you're, and you're also not contending that there is any whole dependent? That there's any, any whole dependent in this case? Um, well, the employee was married uh, at the time, and even though they were separated, if they were separated due to justifiable reasons, if he had been unfaithful and he was incarcerated, those types of facts, there would be, there was a widow in this case. Right, there was a widow, but yeah. not under the law, a whole dependent as defined in the statute. And as I understand it, no one claimed otherwise. Yes, um, I, I mean, I, my, my client um, is not alleging to be a dependent. Okay, so if there's no whole dependent, and I, I don't believe that there is any claim here that the, on behalf of the widow claiming to be whole dependent, um, then you go to the next sentence of 9739, in all other cases. And my question to you is, why doesn't all include the, the plaintiff here? Because the statute, if you look at the statute, which the Fields Court did, you have to look at all of the um, statutes that relate to death benefits as a whole, because the language in all other cases, in my opinion, is ambiguous, it's open to interpretation, and it can't be read in isolation to the other provisions of the Workers' Compensation Act. So the Workers' Compensation Act was passed as a whole, and there's multiple provisions that relate to each other. So for example, um, provisions regarding death benefits are actually covered in four different sections of the Act, 9737 through 9740. Um, the Act also has a provision that contains definitions in 97-2, and even though the Act doesn't define dependent, it does define classes of people that can be dependents. So when the appellant argues that the language in all other cases means that anyone can make a claim, that's inconsistent with language in 97-2 that actually prohibits certain persons from making claims. So in the case of Martin versus Glenwood Park Sanitarium, when there are provisions of legislative acts that are applicable to the same subject, they have to be read together. And if sections are ambiguous, they are subject to judicial construction to determine legislative intent. And under the Martin case, it says definitions contained in an interpretation of the clause are part of the law, and the court cannot ignore the definitions in the act or the related provisions. And so, the Fields Court had a right to look at all of the relevant statutes to determine who could make a claim as a dependent under our Workers' Compensation Act. And there's actually five statutes that are relevant to that determination. And the first one is the definitions. And if you look at 97-2 subparagraph 11, when it defines compensation under the Act, it says compensation is the money payable to an employee 
or, and I'm going to quote the statute, to his dependents as provided for in this article, and then immediately defines child, grandchild, brother, sister, parent, widow, and widower, and it also defines adoption. So these definitions state who can be a dependent under the act. For example, only an acknowledged child who's born out of wedlock can be included as a dependent under the act. Only a child who was legally adopted prior to the time of injury can be included. Brothers and sisters include step-siblings, half-siblings, adopted siblings. It says a parent includes an adopted parent or any person who for more than three years stood in the place of a parent, that's in loco parentis. And so the legislature, the only, in all of these definitions, everyone has some sort of family relationship to the employee through either blood, marriage, or adoption, with the exception of a parent who stands in loco parentis. And the legislature made a decision that that person could make a claim to be a dependent, but said it had to be, they had to be a dependent for at least three years. So the death benefits also talk about, if you look at 9737, that's the provision where an employee is receiving workers' compensation benefits and dies from an unrelated cause, and it states how benefits are paid and the priority, and it says it's paid first to whole dependents, then partial dependents, and then next of kin, as defined in this article. So it uses the words as defined in this article. 9738 is the situation where an employee actually dies from the work injury and states that benefits again are paid and who pays, how they're paid in a priority and order. And the statute says that benefits are paid to persons entitled first whole dependents, then partial, then next of kin. 9739 appears to simply be a burden of proof or evidentiary statute that in the case of a widow or children under the age of 18, they're going to be conclusively presumed to be dependents, but in other cases, and this could apply to if you have a college student that's over the age of 18, a parent, a brother, a sister, those other people that were previously defined in the statute, that's in the all other cases where they have to prove facts of dependency. What, what, do, you, what do you make of Mr. Sumwald's argument based on 9738 I'm sorry? What do you make of this? What is your comment, if any, on Mr. Sumwalt's argument uh, based upon 97-38-3 that talks about the word person? Well, I don't agree with that interpretation, but if you look at 97-39, um, further well, in 97-30. The, the reason I ask is you did, Mr. Sumwalt basically said that 97-39 was essentially a, an evidentiary presumption kind of the statute. You said something fairly similar to that right. in one of your earlier answers. And it, it seems to me, Mr. Sumwalt's argument, if I'm understanding it correctly, if you've got a minute to tell me that he doesn't, if, that I don't understand it correctly, if I don't, uh, he says, in effect, 97-39 is essentially an evidentiary statutes at 97-38-3 is the substantive statute that recognizes the claim. Yeah, I think that's 97-38. Is that 97 what you said? 97-38-3 is what I think he was referring to. Um, well, the benefits are stated in 97-38, but I mean, I think we're getting a little bit, I mean, the statute is simply stating the priority of whole dependence, partial, and next to kin, but these people are defined earlier in the statute. 
And using the word, um, there's a case, State versus Beck, that talks about where a literal interpretation of the language of a statute will lead to absurd results or contravene the manifest purpose of the legislature as otherwise expressed, the reason and purpose of the law shall control, and this strict letter is going to be disregarded. I mean, the statute talks about person. Well, all of these people are persons. So we can be critical of the drafters of these laws, but if you look at 97-2, and we probably wouldn't be standing here if the language had been a little clearer and they said, you know, the dependence as defined below instead of saying dependence as provided for below. I think we wouldn't even be standing here. But it was, So I think that you have to look at the fact that there would be absurd results um, created if you interpret it the way the appellant is arguing. Right. And just so I'll so follow you, Ms. Stevens, what are the absurd results that you were well, to? I mean, if anyone can make a claim, why would we need the definition in 97-2? And why would our legislature state that if you are in the process of adopting a child, that child cannot make a claim to be a dependent, but, any, but a girlfriend can be a dependent? So, so is your absurd results argument, in essence, saying you can't make this argument consistently with the remainder of the statute? Correct. Okay, so, so you're not talking about some person looking at the result that would be reached and saying that's unreasonable, you're saying that the absurd result that you're talking about is the creation of what you believe to be an internal inconsistency in the statutory framework? Correct. Okay. Like, just for example, why would the legislature say someone that stood in the place of a parent, maybe they were going to adopt a child and they didn't get that far, and that they have to actually be a dependent for three whole years before they're allowed to make a claim, but we're going to let a girlfriend of three months be allowed to make a claim. So that's just, it doesn't, it doesn't, you can't reconcile the interpretation of the appellant with the overall, with all of the um, provisions of the statute taken together. And in this case, I well, do think. How do you contend that we should regard then section 97-38? Uh, the other side says it should be seen as being dispositive here for allowing uh, Ms. Stocks to be able to be heard uh, by way of a hearing. Uh, how should we look at 9738 in your view? In my view, 9738 is simply stating the priority of how the claims are paid, but that the people that are allowed to, you still have to fit into a relationship first. So 97-2, there first has to be a relationship to the employee, a class, you have to be in a class of person that's allowed to make a claim. And then 9738 is simply stating the priority of who is receiving those benefits. So you would see 9739 as being dispositive here? 9739 in conjunction with which the, what the Fields Court talked about um, is basically stating that in all other cases only is referring to classes of family members identified in the definition. And speaking of the Fields case, of course, there's some pretty strong language in that case that's uh, pretty moralistic. Uh, what should we do about that language? Should we ig ignore it? Should we look at it that uh, those were the times 70 years ago and therefore uh, we need to disregard Fields from that standpoint but uphold it from a statutory perspective? How should we regard that language relative to whether we should uh, observe fields, whether we should discount fields, or whether we should even overturn fields? Well, fields does have harsh 
language, but I kind of view that more as dicta because they also, the fields court discussed at length the various ways that the employee had no legal obligation to support the claimant who was not his wife. She could not maintain an action for divorce, could not bring an action for alimony, could not inherit a year's allowance, and was, could be compelled to testify against the employee. And then fields was followed in the case of Wilson versus Utah, where an employee was, uh, living with an unrelated woman and supporting three children that were unrelated to him in the Wilson case. And the court said his act of maintaining the children was voluntary and he was under no legal obligation to do so. So had that employee not died and he terminated his relationship with that woman in the state of North Carolina, she couldn't bring a claim for child support against him. So the fields court really, I think, analyzed the statute correctly. They did have this harsh language, but that's really not applicable to looking at reconciling all the provisions of the act. And it is um, really based on the fact that there's no legal relationship or duty to support someone that's not related to you under the law. Let me ask a follow-up about that, about Fields. Um, the court in Fields says, and I'm quoting here, um, manifestly a woman living in cohabitation with a man to whom she is not married is not within the purview of the term, quote, in all other cases, end quote. Um, can you point me to where in the statute the General Assembly said limited that definition of in all other cases to that? Well, I would refer that back to 97-2 that says that the where it lists the following, these are the following people that can be dependents under the act. But I'm, I'm going to I'm have to leave some time for the other appellees. Thank you. But you're not contending that the statute specifically says. No, I think the statute was ambiguous, and I think it did need to be interpreted, and that the fields court had a right to do that. Okay. Yes, thank you. May it please the court, Chief Justice, members of the court. I'm Randy Kloniger. I represent uh, Raymond Tucker West, who's the adult son of Keith Tucker West Jr., the decedent. One of the things that I would like to do uh, outside of the argument I prepared would be to address a couple things that Mr. Sumwalt had said and a question that was raised by Justice Hudson. Uh, Justice Hudson, I, I will address your question first. Um, <clears throat> you had. Uh, questioned whether there was a whole dependent here. There was a potential whole dependent here. It's the wife he was married to is Sharon Cash West, who is an appellee here. She was living separate and apart, of course, and it, I guess it could be inferred or argued that since she was separated for so long, uh, she might not have been dependent upon him. However, that is also a matter of proof, and that was not heard because we entered into a stipulated consent order thereafter between the next of kin and the potential widow. We stipulated that she was a widow because we all believed she was a widow. The part of the statute that I think is very important is this justifiable reason. If you're living apart for justifiable reason or desertion, it goes on to say. So if he deserted her, she is wholly dependent and unfortunately would take over my client and so that was one of the reasons that we would consider entering into an agreement with her is because when she gets up on the stand and pre presents evidence that she was living justifiably apart because he deserted her or because of his actions, 
then she is still a widow and is the primary taker. Is it, is it your contention or understanding that, well, obviously it couldn't be your contention that she was wholly dependent? It would be my contention that she would be presumptively concluded to be wholly dependent if she qualified as widow under the statute by, by justifiably living separate and apart. In which case your client's case would have nowhere would, to go. Exactly, Your Honor. And so when you're, when you're a practitioner, in my point of view, you pick up fields and you look at it and you say, uh, well, the girlfriend, she's out. The fields court eliminates her. The, um, the wife, she's the taker if she can prove justifiably living apart or that he deserted her. So as a practitioner, I'm telling my clients, of course, you have to be understanding that this person is the primary taker in this case, according to the law that exists right now. So that would give motivation for the next of kin not to have a lengthy uh, court battle with the potential widow because when they lose, they're out. And so um, that's pretty clear. And so I think when you keep saying that there's no whole dependent here, uh, potentially there is. And that would be based on the facts. Of course, we stipulated to that based on the information that we did have. to say what you just said is that you were concerned that the widow defined colloquially rather than under the statute might be a widow for purposes of the statute and therefore you settled your claim? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. We would have no incentive if we felt the same way that the appellant feels that she wouldn't qualify as a widow. Uh, we did not feel that way. Of course, that's the whole idea about uh, limiting the takers to family members. Of course, family members are going to fight one another, but more readily, family members will fight strangers to the family. And so, in this instance, uh, the girlfriend becomes the stranger to the family. This is a stepmother with two of her stepchildren. When you look at the record, you'll see that these children were about six or seven or eight years old when the decedent was living with the wife. And so, and so you know, there is some bonding there. And of course, we immediately settled our case because we understood that we were treating each other like family. Isn't what you're talking about, doesn't it highlight the fact that there's a distinction between who has standing to bring a claim and what proof they can provide as to whether or not they're independent? There, there is a distinction, and that distinction is clearly set out in 9739, and that's where I agree with Mr. Sumwalt. I believe that that is an evidentiary statute. And so, if, if I'm understanding your question. Right, and so doesn't the, the, the statute doesn't, in the definition section doesn't have a paragraph that defines dependent, the word dependent, right? It doesn't, Your Honor. But and it that, does define person. It does define person, Your Honor, but when you read it in the context, the persons that they're talking about are the persons that are identified in the statute as potential takers. That's my reading of the statute. Well, well let me ask you about um, one phrase in 97-39. 
because um, the sentence, the second sentence that talks about in all other cases, it goes on to say, no allowance shall be made for any payment made in lieu of board and lodging or services, which, which seems to me at least to suggest that if, if the decedent is paying um, a rent to a landlord, um, that that's, the landlord can't be determined to be dependent. And that that phrase helped narrow this, this question of all other cases, but, but that they contemplated that all other cases could be other dependents, other individuals who are dependent on the decedent. I, I understand that, but I think that the case that addresses that is the McMurray case. The McMurray case basically is a fight between a husband and a wife uh, over who should get. And in that case, the decedent was paying rent to uh, his mother. And so that's, that comes out and says, uh, you, can't, you can't make that claim because that's not a dependency situation. And it mimics what we have here, as, as the record will reflect. She was living uh, at this house from 2010 on. At, from 2015 to 2017, she lived there solely with, with, her, um, with her two children. At that point in time, she asked her landlord, according to the affidavit that they presented on the response to the dismissal, uh, motion to dismiss, that affidavit establishes that they gave permission for him to move in with her. Okay, so so at that point, uh, I'm sorry, with Miss Stocks, with the appellant, she was the one uh, holding the lease on the house. She was the one that lived there with her children for a significant period of time before he moved in with her. Well, there was there was not an evidentiary hearing on these issues, was there? There was not, but what I'm using, uh, Your Honor, is the affidavits and the uh, documents that were. Uh, that were filed in response to the motion to dismiss. So, so what, I mean, Alan's going to ask somebody this question about running out of time. What, you know, this is here on a motion to dismiss. We've had a lot of discussion in the briefs about could Ms. Stocks qualify as a dependent if her claim was to be recognized. Is that question really before us? Um, I don't, I don't think that that question is really before us. So what do we make of all the factual argument that's contained in the briefs about who, among other things, the subject you just discussed with Justice Hudson? Well, let me, let me back up a little bit and just say this. When I look at a motion to dismiss, and I think when the courts look at a motion to dismiss, they basically take what evidence there is to a look at, like affidavits that have been filed in response to the motion to dismiss, pleadings, et cetera, and they make their decision in the light most favorable to the moving party. So in this instance, when I analyzed it, I took her tax returns, I took the fact that she was the leaseholder, I took the fact that he moved in with her, and even if he's paying his rent, and even if, he, even if he's making contributions, you also have to subtract out the fact that he's paying for his own expenses. And there's some, in my brief, I address that. Larson addresses it, and uh, I'm, I'm running out of time. I'd like to let my co-counsel also speak, but I will say one thing. Uh, based on my analysis in the brief, Larson and Larson's observations, it's my contention 
that what you would do in this case is you would leave fields intact as to limiting the takers to those people that are defined. You would also then actually not uh, have to worry with the moral issues there by basically, uh, and I think that they are dicta, because when, he's, when, when, when Justice Winborn looks at it and says, these are the people who can take, they're the only people that are obligated, and then Sheely spells it out and says, it's clear that these are the only people that can take, then I think it's a condition precedent as observed in my brief by Larson that you have to come within one of those uh, definitions before you have the chance to go to the evidentiary statute, which is 9739, and those are the people that are in all other cases. And I'll yield to co counsel. May it please the court, Chief Justice and Associate Justices, I'm Luke West and I represent the appellants, Hoyles, Tire and Axel, and Travelers Indemnity Company. This case is about the General Assembly's intent to prioritize relationship over dependency and its workers' compensation death benefits statutes. The Fields case dealt with 9739. For the first time today, I'm hearing an argument from the other side about 9738, asking the court to look at 97-2 and read the word person and on the argument that that definition is dispositive. However, the 97-2 also includes definitions of all of these different family members. So either way, there is ambiguity in 9739, as the Fields Court recognized. There is ambiguity created in 9738 by defining specific members of the family who are entitled to establish dependency under the Act. So the, the practical import from that is that the Fields Court justifiably and properly interpreted Section 9739, and its holding advances the purpose of the Workers' Compensation Act death benefit statutes. That same principle can be applied to 9738 in this, in this instance, since a similar amb ambiguity is created. Therefore, it is a justifiable endeavor for the court to look to the legislator's intent in passing that statute at a, as a whole. Mr. I think, again, Mr. Sumwalt can speak for himself, but I think his counter-argument to what you just said would be that unlike dependent person is a defined term in the statute and is not subject to limitation by implication, uh, as your argument suggests, what would be, assuming that's his argument, what would be your response? If you could rephrase that just slightly I'll for try. me. I'll uh, Mr. The uh, difference between the use of person and the reference to dependent is dependent is not defined in the statute. Person is. My sense is that Mr. Sumwalt's response to your argument would be that dependent you can construe, person you can't in a limiting way because it's a defined term in the statute. What would be your response to that argument, assuming that that's what he's going to say when he gets up in his minute? Thank you. If if we treat if we treat person in that way it will have the same effect as treating in all other cases in that way by rendering various other portions of defined family members as essentially superfluous or completely moot, which would be an absurd result. That allows the court to inquire into the legislative, into the legislative intent the General Assembly had in passing it. Furthermore, the legislature's silence on this point should be given significant weight. 
the uh, this court has held as recently as 2017 that the long acquiescence in the practical application of a statute is entitled to great weight in arriving at its meaning. If we agree on nothing else today, it's that we don't know what to do with these contrary provisions that seem to conflict with one another. Our courts also hold that when construing a statute, statute determining legislative intent, the court is permitted to infer that the legislature is aware of judicial construction given to the statute. Appellants urge the court to infer that the legislature is aware of the construction given to 9739 by Fields, but also 9738 by its own words. This, since this court's decision in Fields nearly 70 years ago, the General Assembly has taken no steps to repudiate the court's holding or construction or application of that holding as to the standing of unrelated persons. Stocks has shown no subsequent legislative action to, to show a contrary intent by the General Assembly. This is not a case the, the, and, no, and no subsequent statutes re reflect a contrary intent. The, this is not a case where there has been overwhelming change to the concept of, of familial relation, inheritance, administration of estates. Even if cohabitation is more common than it was when the act was passed, our General Assembly still prohibits common law marriage. And that is an important, important fact because if they had moved to recognize common law marriage in the interim between now and the, whole, and the field of holdings, the, the, the fields holding, that would show some intent that the legislature seeks to protect similarly situated persons. Thank you, Council. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, uh, Justice. All right, quick hits here. All right. Um, what is a presumption? These presumptive classes, what, what do they do? There's a rule of evidence on what I'm with butchered this, but I think it's Rule 301. They said it just shifts the burden of proof to the other side. What it doesn't do is it doesn't, these, these statutory definitions don't create an exclusive list of takers. And it's true that the statute doesn't apply to uh, defi define dependent because that's not what Section 9738 says. It says persons wholly dependent, persons partial dependent. It always attaches back to persons. Um, it always attaches back to persons. So that's where we're coming from. I want to talk about motive real quick because if you look at the timeline, guess who jumped in last in this game? It was the widow, the alleged widow over here. Not real widow, but the wife. Uh, look at that. And also, um, we can't be bound by a stipulation we weren't a party to. We were never let in the courthouse. That's the issue here. I'm not saying we'll win in the long run. I'll say we just want the chance to be heard in court. Thank you.